matter what job you did in the enterprise, you need to develop sales skills. There's no function that escapes the power of learning how to sell. My ability to manage change and my drive to solve problems have caused people to ask me to do things that aren't a one-to-one -one fit for what I've done in the past, especially in a changing world. You don't want to be just held back by your resume, by what you've done. You want to be viewed as what you can do, how you think, how do you solve problems, how do you serve on a team, how do you handle pressure. You can be given a command, you can be given an organization to manage, but you have to earn the right to lead. My job as a leader is to earn the respect and trust of my team and help make them more successful. Only by me helping them more successful will I become more successful. I believe strongly that one of the most important attributes of a leader is self-awareness. Am I self-aware of who I am? And do I get any inputs to make me get that right? Rather than pushing back when you get negative feedback, I counsel people is make it easy for people to give you negative feedback. The worst thing for you in life or your career is you walk around in the world thinking one thing and the world view of you is totally different. So having somebody in your life, one or more people, who can say to you, I don't know what you mean to be impacting, but let me tell you how I hear it. And that say it in a way that you can hear or you have the ability to hear it is really important. My name is Kenny Coleman, and the voice you just heard is that of my best friend, my mentor, my hero, and most importantly, my father, Ken Coleman. When I was younger, I had no idea of the legacy and impact of Ken. What I knew about tech was the Atari, Commodore 64, and games by Activision. As I grew up and became a teenager, I learned about Silicon Graphics and how they worked with amazing movies like Jurassic Park, The Abyss, and Terminator 2. I was extremely proud to have my father connected to so many groundbreaking ideas and technology. What I am most proud of when it comes to my father are two things. One, he accomplished all these amazing things and yet he always made time for me. He never missed a game of mine, even if it took a midnight flight. Second, I never knew about his impact on diversity or the black community because I was always surrounded by talented individuals of color and that was normal to me. But as I got out of high school and into adulthood, I learned about all the people that he and my mother impacted and the changes they had a direct hand in to make equality a real thing. Having Ken Coleman as my father has taught me many things. And to this day, he's still teaching me things that I've yet to master, but it's always given me something to strive for. Being his son helped me thrive in leadership roles and be a captain on every team I've ever been on. He taught me how to care about your people, invest in your team, earn their trust, and if they win, ultimately, I win. I learned the value of selling and how the individual skills that you learn from selling are transferable in all walks of life. In every job that I've had, I've had to sell an idea, a product, myself, navigate tough conversations, negotiate, and ask good questions, among many other things. With all that said, the most valuable thing that I've learned outside of being a great father and future husband is having someone or people in your life that will hold you accountable and tell you the truth about whether you like it or not, but that can say it in a way in which you can receive it. 
How he communicates is a work of art and something I strive for daily. The best decision my dad ever made was marrying my mom. And I've been honored to have two parents that are never afraid of being honest, but in a way that is meaningful. I have yet to perfect the receiving part, but I always know that it's the truth and that it's purely out of wanting me to grow and to be better. I couldn't be more proud to introduce this podcast featuring my father, Ken Coleman. Welcome to Changing Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. This podcast was originally created to spotlight the leaders, alumni, and friends of the Cutco Vector Marketing community who are leveraging their positive influence to empower people all over the world to change their lives. Every few weeks, we go outside of the Cutco Vector sphere to bring you a guest who is teaching others how to have a more successful and fulfilling life, both personally and professionally. The special guests we bring to you here in episodes like today's are successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. The lessons they share are compelling, real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome, everybody. I am deeply honored today to have a very, very special guest, a true icon in the Silicon Valley community. Mr. Ken Coleman is with me here today. Ken has had a long and illustrious career in the technology field. He was the director of worldwide staffing at Hewlett Packard, had a long career there. He also was a part of Activision, where he was the VP of product development and developed uh, a very prominent and interesting product that we'll talk about. He later became the executive vice president at Silicon Graphics. Those are just three of Ken's career highlights. There are many more. He has led and influenced multiple companies and organizations. He has built a network of friends, supporters, and mentees all throughout the Silicon Valley and throughout the world. Notably, he has mentored Ben Horowitz, one of the founders of Andreessen Horowitz, one of the prominent venture capital firms in the world. He's mentored Ben Silverman, who's the CEO and founder of Pinterest. And I also might add that I count Ken as a great mentor of mine over the last decade or so that I've known him. I've come to learn a lot of great things about business and about life through my experiences dealing with Ken. I'm very grateful and honored to have you here today, Ken. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invite. All right. Well, I'm really excited to be able to share your story and lessons with our audience today. And I'd love to start with your personal history, Ken. Take us back. Back. Well, that's a long time ago, back. (laughs) But I was born in 1942. And I grew up, was raised in a small town in Southern Illinois. 15,000 people. My great grandparents were born a slave. My parents, neither of which uh, graduated from high school, both of their parents died early and they ended up having to work. So I grew up poor, but loved. And I had three sisters in the household. I was the oldest of four three girls, one boy. 
we live in a four-room house. Uh, so six people in a four-room house. We had an outhouse, one of those things that probably most of you have never heard of. <laughs> so this was, uh, I didn't have, a, I remember visiting a house across the street from me to watch their TV because TV was just coming. And so uh, I went to a segregated grade school called Lincoln. Wow. And, but the high school was integrated because there was only one high school in, in the town. Mm-hmm. One of my images from that experience was my first day on campus. There's an integrated campus, 10% black. And I had never been around white kids other than competing with them in little league baseball. So I had, this was a totally new foreign environment for me or any black kid in my hometown. On that first day, there was a bulletin board and it was a flyer said, sign up if you want to be on the student council. And I signed up and ran and won as an officer on my freshman. I was the first black kid to achieve such. The interesting thing to me looking back is, I don't know why I thought I could win. But I didn't think about losing. I thought about something I wanted to do. And uh, I went and did it. That's an important life lesson for me or anybody is don't doubt yourself. Don't assume that you can't do something. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I ran. So I was on the student council for my freshman year and my sophomore year and my class leader. I uh, played sports, basketball, baseball, football, ran track, did all of those things. And I was president of the German club. I took German in high school and president of the math club. I was good at math. So I had a pretty active life. One of the more interesting things is that on campus, this highly integrated campus, I was viewed as a leader. I never went to a social function off campus with any of my white classmates. Hmm. They don't remember that, but you didn't socialize off campus cross-racial lines, Mm. which was, in hindsight, again, just an interesting factoid. Yeah, this is high school, so this is now the mid and late 50s. I graduated in 1960, so this is late 50s. Yeah. 55, 56, 57, 58. Right. But that's my humble beginnings. I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Ohio State University, academic scholarship, and started off as a math major, decided something between statistics and engineering made sense. So my degree is in industrial management, my undergraduate degree. I was a practical kid. I took German because this is after World War II, and I felt that research papers might be done in German, and I could read newspapers, I mean, research papers. I took typing and I was the only boy in my typing class because I wanted to be able to type my term papers when I went to college. So mm-hmm. I made those kind of practical decisions in the high mm-hmm. And so and there was kind of a logic about each step. So anyway, when I got to college, I realized I still liked math, but I didn't want to be a math professor or a researcher. I needed something that took those skills and interacted with human beings. 
So my degree is in industrial management, which is half industrial engineering and half statistics. Mm. And half of my classes was industrial engineering because I visioned myself as being a plant manager because black people didn't take half white collar jobs. But I knew I could get a job in a factory and maybe if I was good enough, I could ultimately be a plant manager. Mm. And then I worked for a year I was as a buyer. Then I went back to graduate school to get an MBA. Was that at Ohio State too? I was at Ohio State. I chose to go back to Ohio State to get my MBA. And uh, it was a, one of the better decisions for me because I always say that graduate school taught me to think and write mm-hmm. or communicate better with uncertain data. So because in undergraduate school, you learn there's one way to do point A to point B, and that's forever. And in business school, you learn where well, you never have as much information as you would like, and then the world is moving while you're trying to make a decision. And it helped me be a way better decision maker, which ended up being one of my success factors, ability to think in real time in some logical fashion to solve some problem. Mm. Awesome. So your experience in leadership, uh, I love that it goes way, way back. I mean, as a freshman in high school and being part of the student council, being viewed as a leader all throughout that period. And uh, it's uh, it's no surprise to me that that's a part of your your early story. Thank you. How did you end up in the Air Force? Well, I was, this is Vietnam wartime. Everybody was, in those days, everybody got virtually, as you had an excuse, got drafted. And so I felt I was going to be drafted. And the Air Force had a scholarship program to help support you getting your degree and becoming an Air Force officer. So I chose that, that route. I had a choice to go between four schools, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio State, and Arizona. I'm from Illinois, so I didn't want to stay in Illinois. This is how scientific I was. I always loved the Big Ten because I grew up in Big Ten country. I had been to Detroit. And I knew how cold it was. I had an aunt that lived there. And Ohio State had just won a national championship in basketball. <laughs> so, and I always remember I had a car driving to Ohio State University. And the first thing I remember seeing Ohio Stadium and realizing you could put my whole hometown in the end zone of the horseshoe. <laughs> wow. So I like to say I was raised in Centralia, Illinois, but I grew up at the Ohio State University. Oh, that's cool. I was a captain after in the Air Force. So I was a captain in the Air Force. I was a regular officer because I had been through in the top 10% of my graduating class from officer training school and you become a regular officer, which is kind of the you have to understand the military protocol, but it's a special status to be a regular officer. So I saw the major list come out for people who are going to be majors. And I realized that there wasn't really anything I could do to speed that up because they're going to, you're going to become major at the same time 5,000 other people across the world can become majors. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, for somebody to become major early, and you had to screw up to become a, become major late. 
And I said, I know some of these people are smarter than me and should be promoted before me and some to be promoted after me. And the system just felt like there's nothing I could do to manage my career in the system. It just was too big and structured for me. So I decided I wanted to be in a little more entrepreneurial, less structured environment. When I put in my uh, resignation from the Air Force, there's a person who monitors all the regular officers. I got a phone call from a then major saying, why are you leaving the Air Force? How can you do that? You're a regular officer. And I told him this story. And so, but the Air Force was really good for me. I loved it. I learned a lot. Some of my foundations for leadership are from that. In fact, one of my most important tenets, I'll explain this to you. You can be given a command. You can be given an organization to manage, but you have to earn the right to lead. And that's really true in the military because you get a bunch of guys gets assigned to you and they didn't choose you and you didn't choose them. So we're put together and I've said, you're now in charge of this group of people for some reason. And so you can force them to do what without conviction and without enthusiasm to do tasks, but you can't force them to seek elegance. You can't force them to care. You can't force them to, to be creative. You can't force them to lay in bed at night agonizing and thinking about the problem at hand. They can only do that if somehow they're inspired. <laughs> and that you as a leader have to create that. Because if all you do is force people to do stuff, you will never come close to reaching human beings' potential for commitment and success. Right. And so you have to say, my job as a leader is to earn the respect and trust of my team and help make them more successful. Only by me helping them more successful will I become more successful. And as I take that, and that's a practical thing. The second thing I learned in my military journey that I take away from me is, so you get assigned to you, including I'm a second lieutenant, I'm 22 years old, and I got a 45-year-old sergeant who's my sergeant leader under my command. Now, you learn real fast that that sergeant who's old enough to be your father knows way more about things than you do, way more. And if you try to come off like you know more than your sergeant, you will be embarrassed. And so what I learned from that, the leader does not have to be the smartest person in the room. That's not the measure of leadership, strength, success, or vision. And so because often a young leader will say, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, I know everything. And that is obviously not true. So you have to earn the right to lead. So those two things, earn the right to lead. Mm. I love those insights, Ken. That was a, that was very powerful. And I just think about the idea that until you earn the right to lead, if you're in a position of authority, as you said, you can sort of boss people around, but it doesn't have the same effect. And I think that somebody who has that approach where they're bossing someone around, but they haven't earned that right to lead, what builds up in the receiver, what builds up in the people they're trying to influence is sort of an ego resistance where you don't want to 
be pushed around and you don't want to be constantly told what to do by somebody that hasn't earned that right. And eventually, right, the framework of influence right there sort of falls apart between those people. And so, as you said, it is so important to earn that right to lead. That was powerful. I understand that the path led you in 1972 to Hewlett Packard. How did that evolve? So I decided to get out of the military. And this is where an example of networking. There had been a captain that had served on the Air Force base. The Air Force base I was on, there were three black officers. Me, somebody, when I was a captain, and we had a lieutenant who worked for me, and then this other captain. He got out of the service and ended up at a bank, the Bank of California in Palo Alto. So when I got ready to get out of late, a year later, I sent him a note among many other people and says, if you know anybody who's looking for somebody like me, I'm getting out of the Air Force. He gave my name to a guy named Roy Clay, who had a placement agency in the same building as the bank. Roy had worked for HP for a number of years. In fact, he's a really the most kind of the, almost the first black in technology in Silicon Valley. And he had managed the engineering lab at one time at HP. He gave my resume to HP and HP hired me voila. Mm. And this was in 72. And the U.S. economy was just coming out of an engineering bus that just before that, in like 70, 69, in those periods of time, if you were an engineer, there are all these articles about people being going to engineering school and coming out and being taxi drivers. Because engineers, it was just coming out of that. And HP has just decided to get in the computer business because it has been totally an instrument business. And the day I started HP, I was given 100 requisitions for engineers. Wow. And I never recruited an engineer or really been a recruiter. I, for the first four months, this was my schedule. I got up in the morning at 5 o'clock. I read resumes from 5 to 7. I interviewed people from 8 to 3. I did reference checks, put together offers, met with managers for 3 to 6 to 7. I'd go home, eat at 8, go to sleep and get up at 5. <laughs> I did wow. that for four months. But it was like an education. Like I learned so much about computers, about what schools, how software people think, what the different roles were. I just, I've got an edu- I got a PhD in recruiting engineering talent for the computer world. And we were growing very fast. And I came responsible for recruiting, training, and development, and a bunch of administrative stuff. And then, again, another one of those special things that happens in your life. I had been in several meetings with a guy named Crawford Beveridge who ran HR for Europe for HP. So he called me one day and said, how would you like to come to Europe 
and help build out HP's organizations in Northern Europe, the four Scandinavian countries, Belgium and Holland. And I said, send me a ticket. Awesome. And that was one of those career moments where I, got, I went to Europe and got an education on international business. Amazing. And about the difference between countries, you know, how Finland is different from Sweden. And so you learn how to appreciate cultures mm-hmm. and how cultures affect the right business practice. And you appreciate that somebody sitting in Palo Alto sending out a corporate-wide communication, how stupid it could sound to somebody in Germany. <laughs> and so you had to really, if you're truly a global company, you had to think about how other cultures will absorb whatever your message is. Mm-hmm. And you can't assume that everybody understands some issue at the same way you as American understand it. So I, I got an education in business and in life about other cultures, what it was to be an American. It was a special experience. I was on a five-year assignment. Two years in, I get asked by the person who's going to create a new business for HP called commercial computing because HP had only done technical computing previously because it was a, their customers were engineers and scientists, not business people. I was the fourth employee in that business unit, which turns out to be the HP that people know today, HPE. Mm-hmm. And it was built around a one product that the company had called the HP 3000. And we went from four of us kicking that business off to the first billion dollar business in HP. Wow. Incredible. And, and then I got recruited to corporate to be uh, worldwide staffing. And that was an interesting experience, but not a lot of fun. I, I didn't feel I was learning very much in that role. And my people were knocking on my door uh, asking me what I considered leaving HP. And I had turned things down, opportunities down that probably wasn't the wisest thing economically. I got a call from Apple when it was a startup, uh, several other things, but I stayed at HP. It was there for 10 years, and but finally it was time. I knew my next role should be to run all of it, HR somewhere, and I got searched by a search firm to become the Activision, and Activision had 30 people, and I came in as a VP of admin in HR, and we were a, truly a 30-person startup when I joined. And we grew in 18 months to $177 million of revenue. We were the fastest-growing startup in the history of Silicon Valley at that time. Wow. I started off running HR and, and administration. Halfway through that journey, I was there five years, so two and a half years on that journey, we had to... The business went into the tank, just hit a stone wall. What the world thought and we thought, and I thought, that the home computer was going to eliminate the need for dedicated game machines. And that was what was going on. Turns out that was not what was going on. What really was going on was the first product transition in the video game industry. 
and nobody had seen it before, and we didn't understand what it was or what it meant to be. But it is my first example that struck me as common wisdom in the technology industry is seldom correct when you look five to seven years out. Because mm. our common wisdom was the game machines are going to be taken over by the, the home computer machine and they, they couldn't coexist. And everybody believed that, including me. And we were all wrong. I like what you said there about in tech, common wisdom is seldom correct when you look five to 10 years out. Five to seven, I use. That's it. Yeah, that's a provocative concept to consider, not just in tech, but in other things. And that the timeline might be different in other industries or other places in life. But, uh, but it just it speaks to the idea that we all evolve and develop and that things change, right? We have to be able to, to keep up with that. Yeah, in fact, if I think about it, I've said for a long time, five to seven years is more like three to five years now. Mm -hmm. Because the biggest change in technology has been speed. How fast companies grow, how fast technology becomes obsoleted by other newer technology. The pace of change is pretty dramatic. And none of us, no matter what industry you're in, will escape the impact of the fast-moving technology. Yep, exactly. I did want to say one thing about my activism experience. So I've worked at HP. HP was a pristine company. And my first day at Activision, I get called into a room with a bunch of attorneys. And I'm shocked because I'd never been in a room with an attorney in my life. And Atari had sued Activision for violating this patent because they claimed that you couldn't develop a video game company a video game software product on somebody's hardware without violating their patent. Obviously, we won that lawsuit. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a video game software industry. But it's just interesting how one decision could affect the whole entire industry. Yeah. And so after winning that, you guys actually developed what I understand was the first million unit selling video game ever, right? Yeah, Pitfall. 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I started off running finance, HR and, and administration for Activision. Halfway through, when we had this hit-the-wall event, we had to, the CEO felt we needed to do things differently. And he asked me, would I move over and manage the pilot development organization? And I said, who, me? I said, why would you want me to do that? He says, you're the best senior executive in our company in managing change. Mm. And since we believe we have to change the game development process, we need somebody who could lead us through that change. So the reason that's important, again, is that helped. That influenced my ability to manage change. And my other is my ability to solve problems and my drive to solve problems have caused people to ask me to do things that aren't a one-to-one -one fit for what I've done in the past. Mm -hmm. 
It's a set of skills and abilities is my secret sauce, not a particular experience on something. Hmm. And I think that's, again, an important life lesson, and especially in a changing world. You want to be, you don't want to be just held back by your resume, by what you've done. You want to be viewed as what you can do, how you think, how do you solve problems, how do you serve on a team, how do you handle pressure, et cetera. It's skills and abilities and virtual attributes which work so powerfully. And uh, rather than being increasingly important in a changing world. Indeed, it's another very powerful concept to think about, right? How well-rounded is someone becoming in their overall set of skills versus being expert at one thing, but not having that ability to adapt to changing environments? Yeah, and and environments are... You know, the impact that technologies has and will have on people and organizations, the way we live and the way we work is going to be dramatic. Yeah. So Activision and your stint there led you to the opportunity with Silicon Graphics, right? So the SDI story is when the Ed McCracken left, as who I'd worked for at HP, left and became CEO of SGI. He called me and asked me would I join him. He wanted me to do a job I'd done before, run HR and admin. I said, Ed, I've done that before. I need something different than that. I'd like to work with you again. I think you guys got an interesting company, but I've been there, done that as VP of HR. So he says, well, you tell me what you want. Mm-hmm. We'll see if we can accommodate it. What a great position I, to be in. So I worked with Ed and his CFO at the time, a guy named Mark Perry, and we sat down and we crafted a job that was similar to a job that a guy at HP had who was a senior vice president of administration. And basically that job was, I was, a senior, I was vice president of administration, and I had everything corporate other than finance, purchasing, IT, facilities, HR, legal, et cetera. And when I joined the company, we were a $10 million company. And 14 years later, when I left, we had achieved $3.5 billion. Wow. $10 million to $3.5 billion in what time frame? That was from 1987. Uh, I would say over the next 10 years. That's incredible. Most people would say, would say we, at the end of the day, we were up there. We would, when you thought about SGI, you thought about the way you think about Facebook and Google today. Right. We, along with Apple, were the hottest things going in that day. And so, uh, and, we're not the only successful companies, but it was a very successful company. And I spent my first half of my 14 years managing, or for a little more than that, probably the first nine years managing administration. And then I was asked to solve a problem. So you know how executive teams sit around and they 
love to complain about something that's broken. <laughs> and, and everybody comes off as they're the expert at that. Well, our service business was broken and it wasn't, it hadn't been monetized and it wasn't making money. It had bad morale. It just was a wreck. And we had not been able to find somebody who could successfully manage that business because it was a $700 million business on its own right and several thousand people globally. So my, so in this meeting, my boss says, Ken, why don't you solve that services problem? I say, you got to be kidding. I said, I don't know anything about service, and I don't want to fail. <laughs> <laughs> and so every day for the next two weeks, when he saw me, he says, when are you going to run the service business for me? And so finally I said, all right, I get the message. You want me to run the services business? And I said, why? He says, because you're my best guy leading change and fixing things and solving problems. So I took a big gulp and says, I'm going to go for it. Because <laughs> I had a nice job and I was being successful and I was not going to fail running admin. So this was a, a risky thing in my, the way I saw it. So then I will explain to you the best thing I've ever done as a leader. And so here's what it was. I said, okay, I'm smart enough to know that I don't have a lot of time to fix this, number one. And two is I have to fix it fast. I don't have a year or two to figure it out. So I said, so what do people do when they get a new leader? How does that work? So I said, I want to do two things I think that people struggle with with new leaders. One. It is, who is this guy? How does he manage? What is he made of? And they spend nine to 12 months trying to figure out who the new leader is. Okay, I said, I don't have nine to 12 months. Let's spend a day talking about the things I value, the way I lead, what I care about. Okay, and let's dissect me so they don't have to guess about it because we've told them and shared them with that. And then all I have to do is demonstrate that I'm truly that. Mm. So that was one. Day two is, I said, remember I said earlier, you have to earn the right to lead. So the best way to earn your right to lead with a group of people is make their life easier. Make it easier for them to win, easier for them to be successful, supportive of them. So... What I did was I said, okay, we're going to spend this day figuring out what are the things going on that make your life difficult. This is, this is the top 27 managers in my organization from around the world. So we did that, called that down to 10. I says, okay, I personally will take responsibility for solving the top two. I'm going to assign the other eight others of you in this room to solve. And it will report to you, back to you in 60 days. We'll get together again. I solved the two most difficult problems. What did that do? It did two things. I'm willing to make a commitment and deliver on that commitment, number one, mm -hmm. to make their life easier. Two is I expect them to make commitments and meet their commitments and be accountable the same way. So if I'm willing to be accountable, they can be held accountable. And they both work. It worked like magic, I must admit, because we went from the worst morale in the company to the best morale in the company. 
in less than 15 months. Mm. And so, but I just know what I had felt about getting a new leader and how it worked and if I could somehow solve it. And again, my, it's just another example of me doing a job I'd never done before and why somebody would ask me to do it and how I approached on the job. What a great lesson or set of lessons that was right there, Ken. Excellent stuff. And so I went from that to running the service business, turning that around to ask, well, can you pick up the sales business? So I picked up sales and then said, could you pick up marketing? So in the day, the term that people would use would be chief revenue officer, CRO. Okay. So I had a $3 billion number. So I think about that number too sometimes. Well, that's a big number. So <laughs> That is. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Somewhere along these lines, you had the chance to move into Los Altos Hills, right? This is yeah. today is first or second most expensive zip code in the United States. And there were not a lot of African-American families in Los Altos Hills back then, right? Right. There were very few. Uh, I, my guess is there were two or three families at the time. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. We, we were living in San Jose at the time. My wife and I both ended up with jobs in the Mountain View area. We wanted to move closer in, and we found this house in Los Altos Hills on a cul-de-sac and with about an acre and a half of land. It's a very nice place. We still live on the property. But we had an interesting little incident. When the selling broker found out that we were African-American, she went to my broker and says, uh, we'd like to renege on the offer that you've accepted because we understand that Mr. Coleman is black and the neighbors aren't ready in Los Altos Hills for a black couple mm. or a black family. And I was, well, first my realtor was horrified and we were horrified as a couple, Karitha and I, but we bought the house anyway. And it turns out that it was just the opinion of one person, that realtor, not any of the people who lived on that street. Mm -hmm. And it's just an example where you can't be deterred by one bad person that they're willing to push on the system. And fortunately, I had a good realtor on my side. Fortunately, we could afford to buy a house in Los Altos Hills. And we weren't going to be deterred by one person or even a group of people not wanting us to live here. Mm -hmm. And we've been in this property since 1982. Great. I like hearing that. I think that, that there's some good lessons in that story. So after SGI, your career has gone through a series of different companies that you've either started and built or have consulted with. You've, you've had your hands in a lot of things over the uh, 20 plus years since SGI, right? Right. Yeah. So I decided to leave SGI in 2000, basically in 2000. I left in 2001. And I just felt it was time. I'd been there 14 years. I'd given what I could give. I was not going to become CEO. I had, I didn't think I had many things to learn in that environment and it was time to go. 
people say to me, tell me about what you learned in building SGI and what did you find difficult and challenging to manage? So I said, well, the most difficult thing to manage was IT because in those eight, nine years that I was running administration, I went through four CIOs. I could never quite get it right until I finally got it right at the end. And I said, well, then the logical question for myself was, why was that true? And I said, you know what? It doesn't have the business information that it needs to make good business decisions. All this technology and software is going in to make better technical decisions, but not better business decisions. So I said, wouldn't it be interesting if we created software to support that business? And that's what we did. We created the whole concept of the information technology business, the management of the information technology services company inside of a large complex company. So uh, we started that company, sold it five years later to BMC Software as part of BMC today. Uh, some That was 2006. So, And then I was on the side doing what I do now, which is I'm, I'm an advisor to Andreessen Horowitz. Because Ben Horowitz, I hired him out of college, and we've been, he would call me a mentor. I advise a small private equity firm called Carrier Capital. I advise several companies early stage. So I was, I've been involved with Pinterest for eight years since it had less than 200 people. And I advise any number of other companies, mostly early stage companies. And I'm on the board of six companies, half are early stage companies and half are companies in the $100 million range with 1,000 people. But what's more important than the companies is what do I bring to the party? What do I do? Mm -hmm. And so I think of myself as an advisor and think partner, not as a coach or a consultant. And I do three things, and this is, I'm reporting what other people say, and I believe it to be true, but I didn't make, I didn't, it didn't come out of thin air. One is I'm a good think partner, and the reason I'm a good think partner is I ask good questions. I've always been good at asking questions. I'm always curious about how things work. And I provide a perspective because I've just, I've been around a long time. I've been in, I helped grow numerous companies. I've seen, I either I made every mistake that you could make or saw somebody else make it. And so I can just put, suggest warning signs to people that you might want to think about this or you might want to think about that. I don't tell people what to do. It's not my job. I'm just trying to enrich the thinking of the people I work with. So that's think partner. It's the most important thing I do. And then the second thing I do is a relationship advisor. I advise people on how to manage and optimize their 360 matrix. The people above them, the board, your boss, whoever, the people beside you, your peers, your clients, your customers, your partners, and then your people. And so I'm helping you optimize that. And then the third thing is I'm a connector. I know more people around the world than most people. Mm -hmm. The reason I know more people than most people because I've just been connected my whole 
50 years of an adult. And I just reach out to people and stay connected with people long before our tools today, like LinkedIn. Yeah. I mean, Ken, Ken, there's a difference between knowing people and really connecting. And you, as you said, are a connector, right? And what is it that takes you that extra step to really developing deep connections all around the world? What I think that what makes it work for me is I'm first thing, I'm genuinely interested in people. So I'm interested in the person and I'm more about the person, the way they think, how they got to where they are. I'm just curious intellectually about people and what makes them tick. So that's one. So I show up with genuine interest and then I try to be helpful and people know that. And so, and that builds upon itself. So, I mean, I would just say, I just talked to a young woman who's moving out here, working for, going to be working for a company out here. The guy who runs, the guy who founded Carrot Capital went to Warden with the guy who's the father of this girl, this young woman who's going to be working out here. Mark asked me, would I be willing to give her some career advice as she embarked upon a career here in Silicon Valley? And I said, yes. And I don't know how helpful I will be or not with this young lady, but she always remembered that I had tried to help. <laughs> and when people ask me, well, what can you do back for me? I said, look, you can do two things. Be successful. And you can be responsive if I ask you to talk to somebody in the future. Right. And you just, it just builds because you add value. I don't have any other agenda, but to be, become more knowledgeable myself and be helpful to others. And it's a, a way of life for me. It's not some short-term tactical advantage I'm trying to achieve. I just find it, I have met and gotten to know incredibly number of interesting people. Amazing. I love what you said there about just coming to the table with genuine interest and curiosity and then having a desire to be helpful, having a desire to serve other people's needs, not thinking about what you're going to get out of it, but for their best interest. Right, and I think it, uh, and in many ways, it ties with uh, you know earning the right to lead. It's like you earn these great connections through your mentality and through your service to others, and uh, I think that's a very powerful lesson right there for sure. Thank so you. we, yeah, so we met shortly after Kenny, your son, started selling Cutco. I know he started in December of 2010. He was not a traditional Cutco college student recruit. I believe he was 29 years old when he started. Uh, what was your impression of Kenny taking a job like that at 29 years old? Well, so two things. Again, there's everything that's connected with me, as you find out with me. So I had learned to believe that selling, no matter what job you did in the enterprise, in the company, in any organization, you need to develop sales skills. So even if you're an R&D engineer and you have a new idea, you have to sell that idea to your organization. So there's no function that escapes the power of learning how to sell, how to convince other people of something, no matter what function you end up in. One. Two is there were a couple things I knew about Kenny. He had never sold, but he had everything you look for in a salesperson. What is that? First thing, he wants to win. 
Mm-hmm. He's willing to put in the effort and do the work. He can be an engaging human being. And if he likes the product, he will have passion. And but he wants to win. He wants to be successful. And sales gives you that feedback. He for Kenny, that feedback on I'm I do something and something happens. Sales is the best place to get that feedback on your efforts, on your so I thought it would be great. And he loved it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, and he, he, you know, he's an athlete. Athlete, you have to, he, and he demonstrated these skills as an athlete. He never let anybody outwork him. You know, he, he took winning seriously. When he was a college football player, he used to drive his mother crazy. And here's why. If the team won and he had a bad game, he was mad. If he had a good game and the team lost, he was mad. So he was mad after both most football games because it had to be a double win. And that's the kind of way he is. He's a team player. He hated his teammates not being upset by losing, but he also wanted to show up well himself. Yeah. He was accountable for that. So I yeah. said, that sounds like a good characteristic for a salesperson to me. So, yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was certainly great to be able to have that opportunity to work with Kenny. And uh, it's, it's a, a high point that I really enjoyed during, during those times. And it gave us the chance to connect. I remember you coming to a Cutco team meeting in our office and you shared an idea that I think sort of centers around the concept of receiving feedback that I have, uh, that has resonated for me ever since I heard you say it. And what you said, Ken, was um, the best thing that ever happened to me was that I married someone who was willing to call me out on my BS. And I just remember being struck by that quote. It's, as I said, it's always stood out to me. I'd love for you to speak to that dynamic that you have with your wife, Caritha, and how you feel that dynamic of being willing to be called out, being willing to be offered critical feedback, how has that played out in organizations or teams that you've been a part of? So Karitha, my wife, is a truth teller. And there aren't a lot of truth tellers in the world. We're going to tell mm. you, I'm going to really going to tell you, most of us try to color it, rose color it, play nice. But she just tells you the truth. And she, mm-hmm. she will say, if you don't want to know the truth, then we, we don't need to talk. So she's very committed in that way. That's who she is. She does it in a nice way. But if you don't want the truth, she's not a person that you want to be around. <laughs> so what, what that leads to, one of my, my other principles is, I believe strongly that one of the most important attributes of a leader is self-awareness. Am I self-aware of who I am? And do I get any inputs to make me get that right? Because the human mind, the human ecosystem, want ourselves to feel good. And when we hear things that's not consistent the way I want to make myself feel, I, will, I tend to want to discount them. Mm-hmm. As a human mechanism that happens for all human beings. So having somebody in your life, one or more people, who can say to you, 
I don't know what you mean to be impacting, but let me tell you how I hear it. And that say it in a way that you can hear or you have the ability to hear it is really important. So I've just seen so many relationships, personal and professional, blow up because people weren't hearing each other. Mm-hmm. And so, again, another one of my philosophies is, look, I communicate with you or anybody for a desired impact, desired outcome. Do I really know what the desired outcome is? Desired outcome to make somebody more effective or make yourself feel better. If it's to make yourself, make the person more effective, then you need to make sure you communicate that in a way that that person can hear it. Mm -hmm. And so, but since most people aren't adapt, most managers aren't adapt at giving honest feedback, if you're the receiver of the feedback, rather than pushing back when you get negative feedback, I counsel people is make it easy for people to give you negative feedback. Right. They don't, they don't want to. And the worst thing for you in, in life or your career is you walk around in the world thinking one thing and the world view of you is totally different. At least if you know the world view of you, you can say, I'll, I'll suck it up and not just who I am. Or you can change your behavior. But at least it's conscious, not unconsciously. And so make it easy. As I have a methodology, I suggest, on day one, get the feedback. Do not push against the feedback. Push against understanding it, but accept it. Because that's that person's view of you. Mm -hmm. That's that meeting. Then I have, say, can I meet with you later to talk about what feedback you just gave me? Yes. In that meeting, I want to say, I'll ask clarifying questions, get better understanding, and explain what you meant or how that happened or the many misunderstandings. But that's your meeting, and the person who had given you initial negative feedback, it won't feel as defensive as when you pushing in the same meeting you're getting the feedback. Right. Because most managers aren't trying to be bad to you, okay? And they feel the way they feel. If he t- the manager's telling you the truth, in that manager's eyes is the truth. Mm-hmm. If it's not the truth, you want to have a chance to defend yourself. But if you don't know what they are thinking because they're afraid to give you honest feedback, shame on you. Mm-hmm. That What you just said is so profound, Ken. You said, if you don't know what someone else is thinking because they're afraid to give you honest feedback, then shame on you. It's such a powerful insight. And as a young leader, I fell into some of the mistakes and things that you described earlier. I felt like I had to have all the answers. I felt like I had to be the smartest person in the room, so to speak, as you were describing earlier. I felt all those things as a young leader, sort of trying to find my way. And what I feel like was one of the most compelling bits of my evolution centered around this area. And to me, this evolution was happening, you know, well in advance of this moment I had listening to you speak. It was cemented when you said what I heard you say. And it's really enabled me to have a a relationship now, at least within my organization, where I feel like I can have open conversations with anybody and they tend not to be too afraid to tell me what they think. And so that's been a powerful 
development tool for me to increase my self-awareness and my effectiveness. Great. What inspires you most for the future, Ken? Well, I was once quoted in Fortune, which says, you will be amazed by what can be accomplished with technology and it all won't be good. So I'm the most excited and concerned about the same thing. We're going to have significant movement with technology. Uh, We're going to be more connected. We're going to live longer because of medical technology. And so amazing things are going to be possible. I think our biggest breakthroughs will be in medicine, especially in mental medicine, because I think our physical capability to deal with joints and breakages and things like that is far advanced than our ability to deal with what's going on in the brain. A little bit of the physical stuff is more chemistry, the problems of the moral biology, which is everybody's going to be a little different. We're seeing that with reaction to COVID. And we're learning a lot about the human genome and how it all works. Because two people who look similarly can have a very different reaction to COVID. So I'm I'm excited about technology advances, what that will allow to happen with society. I'm concerned that can our system keep up with those changes and will our society be civil to each other? But I think the young people who are now in Cutco are going to be living in a way more exciting times than I lived in. And I've been lived in very exciting times. Mm-hmm. What, Ken, do you feel like is the biggest piece of advice you'd have for young people who are listening to this? Number one is follow your passion. Life's a journey. And you'd like to be as in, an integrated uh, human being. You could be of what you like, what you're passionate about, what your skills are, what your interests are. The better you can align that to who you are. And that's an internal thing. Not Don't be driven by external trappings. What makes you want to get up and decided to go do whatever you do every morning? Because doing something that you hate doing, is that's a pretty tragic life from my point of view. So follow your passion. Remember, to be great at whatever you want to do, you need to be willing to put the effort to work hard. They're all great athletes, all great leaders, all great historians, all great professors, physicians work their butts off. And the one thing you can control, the one thing you can control for sure is how hard you work. You can't control how smart you are. You can't control all the the twists and turnings that life will deal to you. But you can control how you respond to them. You can control how hard you work. And none of us are close to achieving our optimum contribution to society to work, Mm. to family. It's a journey. It's complex. Life changes. Life deals with you all kinds of natural and non-natural hurdles and barriers in front of you. But if you you can optimize who you are, if I can optimize who Ken Coleman is, if I can be in control of my behavior to be consistent with what I'm trying to accomplish in life and in the world, that's all I can ask of myself. Mm -hmm. Life's not fair. You have to be willing to overcome natural and unnatural barriers. Be a learning person. Learn how to manage 
change. You're going to live in a, over the next decade or two, the world's going to be very different than it is today. Just think about how many of us, including myself, had not thought about a virus like the Delta variant. That was in the movies a few years ago. And a society or a person's ability to adapt when things happen will say a lot about your ultimate success and happiness. So that would be a challenge that goes along with this great possibility. So think about this. You're at the ocean. You're down at, off the beach of Maui, where I love to go. And you got the ocean and the waves are coming in and tides coming in. You can be one of two kinds of person. You can be laying in the sand with your hands out trying to keep the tide from coming in. Or you can be standing up building bridges and moats, controlling where the water goes. Which person do you want to be? A bridge builder. But that's the choice that we all as human beings have to make. The tide is coming. The question is, what is your role as it relates to the tide? That would be my best piece of advice. Yeah. If people are listening and they're like, I love everything this guy has to say. I want to support this sort of vision, these sort of values. How can we be those bridge builders, Ken? There's no one way to be a bridge builder. I mean, expand your network, have open dialogue with your networks, read. But I'm a people person. So I like having conversations with people, with individuals. I learn something every day by talking to people. And uh, I'm open to different ideas and different concepts. But I've learned this as a manager, as an executive. I had to explain to people one thing about me, which is I ask questions, not because of what I believe, because I think the question deserves to be answered. So even if I agree with what your point you want to make, and so so you can't read where I'm coming from in a meeting, because mm-hmm. I'll ask a question, even I 100% agree with you, just because I'm checking myself up. Right. We're thinking about that in the right way. And so be an intellectually curious person. By the way, you'll be more interesting if you're intellectually curious. And then my last two things would be take care of yourself. Remember that a career journey working in knowledge-based companies is you're doing an intellectual and emotional marathon every week. If you're doing a physical marathon every week, you would definitely not run the marathon without plenty of rest. And since work is a marathon, you've got to be willing to take care of your body and your mind if you want to show up to do your best. And so learning how to manage yourself and your own energy levels and when enough's enough for you is a really important thing. And then final lesson that I learned was manage your personal life. Because if you're a highly motivated human being, work will fill up every free moment of the day. So schedule time with your significant other, your children, your family. Otherwise, it won't happen. And life will have passed you by and you would miss smelling the roses. Mm. I have admired, Ken, about how you've clearly been willing to work hard throughout your life, but you've also built this amazing family life and amazing personal lifestyle. And, uh, you know, when you think about 
many people's view of what success would look like. My perception of your life is it. It's what we all hope to have. You have this legacy of all these people you've impacted professionally and personally. You've got this great family life and a, a track record of success at everything you've done. And it's, uh, it's just a great example that people have to follow. Thank you very much. You're very kind of you. It's been great talking with you, Dan. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ken, for all of your incredible wisdom and insight. I always enjoy being able to connect with you and being able to learn from you and benefit from all your wisdom and experience. I appreciate it. All right. Cheers. That was Ken Coleman, everyone. And I think you can see why Ken has been such a profound impact on my life. Really amazing to hear the background of his life. And, you know, his great grandparents were born slaves and growing up in segregated schools in in Illinois back in those days. And and to have evolved to where he is now and to be the person he is now is just a really, really powerful story. I think that the piece about networking where Ken talked about genuine interest in others and being curious and looking for ways to be helpful, that trait or quality probably goes all the way back in Ken's life and was an instrumental part of him becoming a great leader and earning the right to lead other people. And all of the success that he's had in his life, I think much of it can be centered around that trait being developed early in his life where he described in taking over an organization and having a, an exercise in sharing his values with the team and then finding out what are some of the problems and solving those problems and creating an open communication and open feedback. I do feel like that dynamic uh, certainly is one of the things that has helped him to succeed as a leader and to continue to evolve. The concept about making it easy for people to give you negative feedback and where he said his wife, Karitha, is a truth teller and that it's such an important attribute in life is self-awareness. And do I get the inputs to get that right? That was a compelling question for anyone to ponder. Am I getting the inputs in my life to get it right in terms of self-awareness, how I am received by others, not just what I think, how I think I'm being received, but how am I actually being received by others around me? That was a very powerful insight as well. I love that Ken said that everybody must develop sales skills in order to be successful. And when he saw Kenny have a chance to learn that with Cutco, that he knew it would be very valuable. And then, of course, uh, Ken, toward the end, talked about how business is an intellectual and emotional marathon. And just as if you're running a physical marathon, you would take time for recovery. We have to have time for recovery in our work schedules and balancing our work and life schedule as well. And you know, managing your personal life schedule to be able to have the lifestyle that you want and achieve the balance that you want between working and doing the things that are most important to you in your life. Those were great insights as well. As I said, Ken is just an all-around example of incredible success, a man that has achieved 
amazing things in the business world, has an incredible personal life, is known all across the world, is an icon in the Silicon Valley, and is leaving an incredible legacy of all the people who he has impacted, mentored, influenced, and helped to develop. I'm grateful to count myself as one of those people. So grateful to have had Ken as a guest here today and honored to have had Ken as a guest here today. And I hope you enjoyed this. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 